The Gospel of Luke, chapter 4. read this account of uh, after Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist. We hear from God's holy word, which is our authority in faith and in life, so please give your attention to its reading. Luke chapter 4. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the desert, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man does not live on bread alone. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor, for it has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. So if you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, it says, do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. The grass withers and the flower fades. The word of our God endures forever. Well, have you ever had an experience like this? Someone comes up to you and says, Hey, I've, I've heard you're a great singer. Or I've heard you're really good at a certain sport. Or... Or even, I've heard you do a great imitation of a famous celebrity. Could you show it to us? In times like these, often we'll get embarrassed because we know that what we have been asked to do is now going to be observed with a high level of scrutiny. There are high expectations that have been set. We think to ourselves, perhaps I'm not as good at this as this person expects me to be. In a way... These people are calling into question what they have heard about you. And now your day of testing has arrived. The question is, will you make it good on the news that has traveled about you? At his baptism, Jesus and everyone around has heard something declared about this man from Nazareth. He is the son of God. As it relates to John's baptism, that means that the father from heaven looks down upon Jesus as blameless, as perfect, as without sin. Jesus does this because no one else in Israel could have had that verdict said about them. So the devil gets it in mind in today's passage that he's going to find out if all of this is really true. He comes to test And to tempt Jesus, to question whether or not he is the Son of God, to see how serious this mission really is. This encounter with Satan is the most serious and direct assault upon Jesus until he will meet him later in life, the end of his life, at the 
event of the cross. Many people struggle with how to understand this passage as it relates to us. Is Jesus teaching us how to defeat temptation? Is Jesus being a moral example for us? Does it relate to uh, Jesus standing as a representative of Israel? We will see that there are elements of all of these that are true in this passage. But they should be understood in the correct order. Jesus is primarily on mission. He is on mission as the true Israel. The Israel that the people of God could never be. He is on mission as the last Adam. His use of God's word and his insights into the scriptures teach us how important it is to have scripture within our hearts so that we may withstand all the wiles of the devil. We do learn that in this passage, but it's important to understand that we must not view ourselves or our lives as doing the exact same thing that Jesus does, and specifically here in this passage, because his journey out into the wilderness, his testing and his temptation by the devil his victory over his enemies, are also that he might save people out of their wilderness of sin. So we see that primarily Jesus is on this mission. And we learn other things through this passage, but it's important to understand it in the right order. The temptation by the devil uh, upon Jesus breaks up nicely into three different temptations, and so we'll look at them in order. The first then happens in verses 1 through 4, and we see that the devil tempts Jesus according to physical need. Physical need. The Spirit leads Jesus into the desert. The Holy Spirit leads him out into the desert. The same phrase, into the desert or into the wilderness, occurs um, over, well over 30 times in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, with regard to Israel. It's a formula that shows what they went through after the exodus. And it was the scene of their testing before God. It was where Israel was under testing. John's baptism recalls their failure to obey. Remember John said, you must repent. You must ask the Lord to forgive your sins. And Jesus has identified with the people of Israel by being baptized by John the Baptist. That's part of what it teaches us. And so Jesus, we are clued in again, is retracing the steps of Israel. Because of their disobedience, because of their failure, he goes where they have gone. And we ask, we're meant to ask, will the result be any different? He is tempted for 40 days by the devil. It seems as if there was an ongoing temptation. And the ones that we read about here are representative of all of them. And probably these three specifically happened towards the end of the 40 days. We see that the devil hearkens back to Jesus' baptism with the first words that he says. If you are the son of God. The Father has declared from heaven, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And the devil says, if you are that Son of God, and his temptation is perhaps the most obvious one to start with, he says, tell this stone to turn to bread. Luke, with all of his precision and literary accuracy and wonderful writing, turns to the abundantly obvious at this point and tells us that Jesus, at the end of the 40 days of not eating, was hungry. And so the devil goes after this weakness first. If Jesus is anything like Israel, this will be more than enough 
to get him to fall to temptation. Again and again, the Israelites would grumble and complain about their lack of food or water. When they were out in the wilderness, they longed for the fish and cucumbers and peppers and garlic that they ate in Egypt, and they wanted those so badly that they wished they could go back to where they were enslaved. It sounds crazy, it sounds silly, but it's true, isn't it, that the same is the case for us. We trust what we see. We trust what we feel. And so our senses drive us to do all sorts of things. What does this reveal to us about ourselves? It reveals that, oh, uh, that although we are body, mind, and soul, we often think about things like health or comfort in bodily terms first rather than in spiritual terms. And we can often fall into sin by operating in a way that appeases the body first. And probably more related to this passage, we can often let the health of our soul be compromised by wanting to keep our body comfortable. This is what Israel constantly did. Their trust in their covenant God and Lord wavered because they were hungry. They questioned God's faithfulness because they were thirsty. It is true that it is not good for a person to be hungry or thirsty. It's true that it's not good for a person to be in all different kinds of challenges or pain or discomfort or trials. But does that excuse our doubting the faithfulness of God? Does it make it okay to accuse him of breaking his covenants? The scriptures tell us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And we'll find out especially later in this passage, what that means and what it means to be wise relative to starting out with viewing this world first according to the fear of the Lord. But Jesus' response shows what it means to approach temptation not just with a view to the body, but body, mind, and soul. He says, man does not live on bread alone. This is a quote from Deuteronomy chapter 8. And All of Jesus' responses in this passage are quotes from Deuteronomy. And that, of course, is no accident. The book of Deuteronomy is the place where we see the drama of Israel in the wilderness. And they're wandering away from God. And they're constant falling back into sin. And so the showdown between the devil and Jesus is a restaging of the drama of Israel in the wilderness. Jesus sets out to undergo the same test. And he responds with the words that God spoke to Israel in the wilderness from Deuteronomy. In other words, this is how Israel should have understood these scriptures. This is how Israel should have responded. He retraces the story not only of Israel, but of Adam. But there's a key difference. Adam's day of testing came in the Garden of Eden, when he was surrounded by blessedness, when he was surrounded by God's good creation. Not under the curse. Jesus' day of testing happens already in the desert, the place where Adam was banished to go. And so we see that Jesus is bearing the curse of that first Adam while undergoing his own test. The first temptation also uh, shows the way that the devil is thinking about this title, Son of God. He demands that Jesus perform a miracle. That's what he's telling him to do. So you say you're the son of God. Prove yourself. Do a miracle. Show your power. 
He demands a sign from Jesus. But what is the title Son of God really all about? We saw last week in the genealogy of Jesus that Adam is called the Son of God. And so the title Son of God has more to do with a man obeying God's law, someone being the obedient Son of God. And that shows us why Jesus responds the way that he does. The devil says, show me that you're God. And Jesus says, man does not live on bread alone. He's showing that he's thinking about this title, Son of God, as the obedient Son with a human nature. The second temptation we see that the devil tempts Jesus by giving a shortcut. He tempts Jesus by giving a shortcut. Verse 5, the devil takes Jesus up to see all the kingdoms of the world simultaneously We're not sure exactly how it happens. There's some kind of explanation that the the text doesn't necessarily specifically give us. But we read that at a certain moment, they look down upon all of the kingdoms of the earth. So, amber waves of grain, purple mountains, majesty. It's all before their eyes. The oceans, the land, all the kingdoms of the earth. Focus with me on verse 6. Verse 6 is an introduction to this temptation. It contains half truth and half lie. The devil says that all of this has been given to me. Speaking of all the kingdoms of the earth, they look down. The devil says all of this has been given unto me. This sounds like a huge claim, but it is at least partially true. Ephesians 2 says that the devil rules the age of this world. And perhaps most vividly, at the end of 1 John, the Apostle John writes that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. The devil has been given authority to go throughout the world and to do his work. We get a glimpse into this at the beginning of the book of Job, don't we? where they're in the throne room of God. We get a a vision into the throne room of God and the devil comes into the throne room and we see that God has granted him to go throughout the world and to work according to his power. But the next part of the verse is a much bigger claim. He says, I can give it, in other words, I can give all of these kingdoms of the world, I can give it to anyone I want to. Now, he has significant authority in this world, but it is not his to give, for he has been given it by God. And so, this is a lie. This is untrue. Still, the temptation is real. And what it offers, if it's even offering it falsely, is an escape of all of the suffering that Jesus was appointed to go through. Worship me. Bow before me and I will give all of this to you. Jesus has willingly accepted his road of suffering. But as we find out later in his life, specifically in the garden of Gethsemane, we find out that he did not revel in his suffering. He did not take great joy in all of the pain that he had to undergo, in the separation from the Father that he had to experience. He does not revel in those things. He wishes that the cup of suffering would pass. And here is an offer for him to do so. Bow down and worship the devil. Not only is it an escape 
from all of the things that he would have had to go through, even if it's a, a false offer. But it offers the very same thing that the father promised to give to the son if he were obedient. We're speaking here of the eternal covenant of redemption or the eternal agreement between the father and the son and the Holy Spirit which had to do with redemption. The father, son, and Holy Spirit covenanted together to accomplish our salvation The son willingly agreed to take the curse upon himself by becoming man. The Holy Spirit agreed to carry out and to empower Jesus to do all these things and to then apply the benefits of Jesus to all of his people who believe in Christ. And the father promised, among other things, to give all things into the son's hand. The father promised to give all things to the son. Jesus says at the end of his life, as he's praying in the Gospel of John, I have brought you glory on earth. How? By completing the work which you gave me to do. A very specific work that Jesus was sent to do. As he ascends into heaven, he says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given unto me because of what he was obedient to do. Philippians chapter 2, of course, a very famous passage about the obedience of Christ, probably spells this out most clearly for us. Jesus did many things. He took the form of a servant. He came to earth. He became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And then Paul says, therefore, which means because of all of these things, so now this. Because Jesus was obedient, therefore God has highly exalted him. The Father gave him all of these things because of his obedience and gave him a name and a throne and a kingdom above all others. And so what the devil offers Jesus here in this second temptation is a profane version of that eternal covenant. It is a shortcut. It is a way around his suffering. Jesus' answer is once again from the book of Deuteronomy, specifically chapter 6, and he says, you shall worship and serve the Lord alone. Although the devil offers Jesus a way around his suffering, a way to avoid it, Jesus chooses the way of the cross. He knows that in order to accomplish his mission, he knows that in order to receive the things promised by the Father, He must not bend the knee. Jesus shows that what the devil is offering is really a false claim that he is God. To bow before him would be idolatry and the obedient son cannot sin. Therefore, the obedient son will not bow down. Just as with the hunger and the bread, Jesus succeeds where Israel failed. They struggled both out in the wilderness and even when they were in the land of Canaan with worshiping other gods and turning to idols. They were led astray, but the true Israel hears God's words. Jesus Christ, the true Israel, hears what God says and he obeys. Jesus also succeeds where you and I fail. It's funny, in today's world, someone might have said to Jesus as he was facing this temptation... What does your heart tell you to do? What do you, what do you want to have happen? Follow your heart. But of course, if we take an honest look at the heart of Jesus, what do we find? 
we find that he had every desire to obey his father and to be um, obedient and glorified by him. But we also see that he desired that the cup of suffering pass from him, which we find out later, as I said, in the Garden of Gethsemane. And so Jesus looks to the word of God. Jesus looks elsewhere to remind himself of God's word. And that is why he says no to the devil's temptation. Jesus is perfect. He is sinless. He is the God-man. He is righteous. And yet we see that there is a reality of the temptation being set before him. And so how much more should we pay attention to it for we who are fallen and sinful? And we understand that the heart, that, that is the, the inner seat of our feelings and emotions, can be a dangerous place to deliberate and to make decisions when we feel as though we are tempted. John Calvin taught that our hearts are factories of idolatry. And that sounds harsh, but here's what he means. According to our sinful nature, we crave the chance to fashion a God in our own image. We crave a chance to create a God according to our own preferences. And so in order to battle against those preferences, God reveals himself to us in his word. As a God who is just and merciful. As a God who is perhaps not like the God that the human race would have created for itself, but a God who is infinitely better. Jesus staving off this temptation is what we can look to in order to be reminded that while we struggle against so many things in this world and the temptations that we face in this world, and while we struggle so much and so often against the wretched folks that we so often are, Jesus has overcome the world and sin and the devil. And he did it by reminding himself of the words of God. So we rest in his victory, but we learn from his victory. We go somewhere else, outside of ourselves, being very cautious to trust in our hearts before they have been shaped by the, word, by the word of God. And that's very important. Our hearts can become a very powerful force against temptation when our desires have been formed by God's word. Jesus recalls Deuteronomy and the glory of God through his own exaltation is the chief desire of his heart. And that's what allows him to defeat Satan in this temptation. The book of Hebrews will tell us that for the joy set before him, Jesus Christ endured the cross, despising the shame, and he is seated at the right hand of God. It doesn't tell us that he enjoyed or reveled in his suffering. He said he looked to the reward. He looked to the joy that was set before him. He recalled the promises of God, and that's what allowed him, out of a a heart that was rightly ordered to the glory of God to stave off the temptation of the devil. The third temptation is found in verses 9 through 13, and we see that the devil tempts with God's promises. This is the climax of the encounter, the climax of this cosmic battle between good and evil. It's a culmination because the devil turns Jesus' strategy on his head. He's up to what he's doing. 
He sees that Jesus is using God's word to battle against him. And so the devil decides to do the same. They go to the temple. We're told that they're standing on the highest point. And this is the perfect place to go for this last temptation because uh, the devil is going to bring Jesus' attention to a promise of God that is found in his word. And the temple was probably the most obvious place on earth to go so that while you hear about the promises of God, you can see the promises of God. See, what God promises to his people, he gives it to them. And so that's why the devil brings Jesus to that place so that when he hears the promises, he will then see real evidence of God's faithfulness. Throw yourself down from here, he says to Jesus, which seems rather silly, but the devil knows what he is doing. And he knows just where he can go in scripture to justify his challenge. He turns to Psalm 91. And he doesn't really turn there. He didn't have a Bible with him or a scroll with him. Uh, He recalls it. So he has God's word memorized. It's important for us to take note of. He knows what God's word says. Throw yourself down from here, for he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. This is Psalm 91. He is interpreting it very literally, isn't he? Throw yourself down, for no harm will come to you. Because look at what God's word says in Psalm 91. He's not going to let any harm come to you. And it's interesting that he's seeing that the center of Psalm 91, who Psalm 91 actually is speaking about, is the Messiah. Throw yourself down from here. God will not allow harm to come to you. Interpreting it literally, or perhaps better to say he's interpreting this with reference to this world only, or this life only. Jesus' response, once again from Deuteronomy, invokes another story from the history of Israel, where they dealt with God's promises the same way that the devil does here. Jesus recalls the story from Exodus 17 when he says do not test the Lord your God that's Deuteronomy 6 16 and the second half of the verse says this do not test the Lord your God as you did at Massa it was there again the story which is found in Exodus 17 where Israel was again grumbling about being thirsty about having no water to drink and they call Moses to account for the inactivity of God Why is God not acting for us? And so they have a court-martial, and they call God to stand trial. That's actually what happens in Exodus 17. They accuse God, and they call him to stand trial. Is the Lord with us or not? That's their accusation. They believe that God has broken the covenant that he made with them, And they believe that God has broken the covenant with them because they are thirsty. Since God has allowed us to go thirsty, he has sinned by breaking the covenant. So what then? Was God guilty? Was God to be blamed? Was God to be accused? Jesus says, you shall not put the Lord to the test. What does he mean? In saying no to this temptation, what does he mean? He at least means that to accuse God, 
to think that he has been unfaithful to his promises is to break the covenant yourself. See, God calls his people to trust in him. And what that means is that God calls his people to trust in him as the creator and the sustainer of the heavens and the earth. And he calls us to trust in him that he is providentially in control of all things, that all things are within his care. And that includes times of abundance and times of famine. That includes times of great blessing and times of great trial. God calls us to fear him and to trust him and to recognize that we are not equipped to answer the questions of what is or is not best for us at any certain time. Israel said, water is what is best for us right now. We so often say, I know what is best for me right now. I know what God should do for me right now. But when we do that, we call God to account. We call God to stand trial. We call his providence into question, saying we know better than he does. And it's completely legitimate to admit that you don't understand what you're going through, to admit that you can't make sense of all the things in your life and say, this is so messed up. How long, O Lord, are you hearing my prayers? I don't get it. But when we say, I know what is best for me, then we accuse God. The devil's challenge to Jesus is simple, isn't it? Here are God's promises. He will not let you be harmed. He will not let your foot hit a stone. Trust God's word, he says. But the devil's use of scripture fails on at least two counts. The first is this. It displaces the providence of God, like we just said. It makes yourself the Lord of all and not him. And the second, it makes the only possible application of this text, of Psalm 91 to this world and the things that we see and we feel and we taste. We can almost hear an ancient echo of the Garden of Eden in the devil's words here, can't we? When he said, surely you will not die, right? Here is Psalm 91, no harm will come to you. He will not let you die. But as we close this morning, brothers and sisters, let us think about that. Will the father let his son die? Jesus knows the answer to that question. He knows that he will have to die. And, he, and so he knows that the devil has failed to see the depth within Psalm 91. How is it true that he will not let your foot strike a stone? It is true only when we see that God fulfills his promises not in this world but in the age to come. God is not here. God does not exist to be a genie or a Santa Claus. And Jesus knew this. And he knew that God is also not a liar, that his word is proven true always. Though in this life we have trouble, and we will have trouble, Jesus Christ also had trouble, and he overcame this world. He overcame it by becoming obedient for us unto death. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. For the joy set before us, 
May we follow him in faith. May we look to the sufferings that he underwent and understand how God fulfills his promises. May we have an anchor that goes up into heaven. When met with temptation, may we seek God's wisdom in his word that it may reform the desires of our hearts to the glory of God. May we see what ultimately makes the promises of God hold up, what proves his word true. Jesus never said that this life would be easy, but we know that because of what he has done, it will be worth it. Let's pray. And so, faithful God, we come to you and ask that you bless us again. Feed our souls with your truth and your word. Forgive us of our sins once again in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, the true Israel, the last Adam. It's in his name we pray. Amen. We respond in song by singing number 446, My Faith Looks Up to Thee.